under the skin. Have a look, but never smell it. Today's guest is Adam Curtis. Do you know Adam Curtis? Have you seen Hypernormalisation, his new film? Did you watch that thing, Bit of Lake? Did you see The Power of Nightmares? Did you see Century of the Self, The Mayfair set? I've seen all them things, and that is why I'm much more cleverer than what you are. In this episode of Under Skin, I talked to Adam Curtis about, well, all manner of things, actually, but he's a brilliant political mind. If you want to understand what's going on in the world, Trump, Brexit, terrorism, the way that media news narratives are contrived, conspiracy theories, what are their value, then you could do a lot worse than to watch Adam Curtis's films. I've become friends with him, actually, and I find him to be an absolute darling man. Do you know, you may not know, that he was actually made films for That's Life, and that if you're a person that's about my age, you were born in the 70s or 80s, you might remember a program called That's Life with Esther Ranson where she would get sort of, like, you know, good news-type stories, like a dog going, sausages, a dog talking and saying, sausages, sort of pap, mindlessness. Well, Adam Curtis made that, but he went on to be one of the great narrators of our complex media... Age. If you're an American listener and not familiar with Adam's work, you want to get familiar with it right now by checking out his blog. But uh, he's a fantastic storyteller on great sort of cultural events such as, uh, you know, like defining events such as 9-11, the, the, uh, the Berlin Wall coming down. He gives us an interesting perspective. So check out his stuff. Check out this interview. Remember to go and give me a, a nice positive review. You're listening to Russell Brand, Under the Skin. I've been uh, giving you your intro the whole time that you've been shambling through the corridors like a grey ghost, wandering about like Jacob Marley, with the chains being your own archive, saying most wonderful things about hypernormalisation. What do you mean that we're living in an unreal world, uh, some sort of simulacrum? Hmm? What do you mean by it? What is the point of this film, Hypernormalisation? Tell us what you mean. What I meant by hypernormalisation, I mean... So it's stern. What I meant by hypernormalization is that it, it go, the term comes from a, guy, a rather interesting guy who wrote about what it was like to live in the Soviet Union in the, late, in the middle of the 1980s mm. when the Soviet Union was collapsing because there wasn't really any protest at the time. But what he pointed out he, is that everyone knew that everything was not right. They knew that those in control had no control. They knew that those running the economy were not in control, that everything was corrupt and often completely fake because the leaders were pretending they were in control. Everybody knew this, and the leaders knew that everybody knew this. But nobody did anything about it because there was nothing else. It was normal. Mm. And he coined the phrase hypernormalization to describe this, that somehow you knew that everything was a bit odd and a bit unreal and often fake, but because there was no other picture of the world and you were so within this system, you accepted it as normal and just went on. And what I'm trying to argue in this film is not that in any way we're like the Soviet Union. Mm. We're a very different society. But what we do share with that time is a sense among a lot of people that things are a bit odd and unreal and sometimes fake and that those in charge know that they're not in charge and they know that we know they're not in charge of things, mm. that everything is a bit chaotic, uncertain, we distrust everyone in charge. We also know those in charge allow a great deal of corruption to carry on 
without doing much about it. We know that they're not in control of the economy and they know we're not in control. They know that we know they're not in control of the economy. And that's, but at the very same time, we, we are so much a part of that system that we don't have any vision of an alternative. Mm. And I include by that the left. The yeah. people who argue that they do want to change things, they don't have a vision of an alternative. So we accept it as normal. So when you, when you see another newspaper article coming out saying, oh, look, uh, the, we're actually supplying arms to the Yemen to allow the Saudis to uh, bomb Yemen, we go, yeah? yeah? Well, we sort of expect yeah, that. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean, because I did hear that we were supplying arms to the Saudis to bomb Yemen the other day. And I thought, oh, yes, that's a very that's a very good example. The reaction is the most interesting thing of our time. Mm. We sort of expect it that that the arms industry and the government in this country would allegedly allow arms to be supplied to this war that we know is causing horrific civilian deaths Mm. and we have no way of controlling it. We know that. And we just accept it. It's normal. But actually, it's wrong, isn't it? Yes. But we know that however much we feel it might be wrong, nothing's going to change. Is a, con- a condition of hypernormalisation then, Adam, impotence? It is impotence in the face of a chaotic world that we think those in charge have no control over. But we accept it. So it's not just impotence. It's we're passive and we accept it. Mm. So in a way, we are as complicit in it as our leaders but but we do that because no one has gives us any alternative we accept it as just normal when think when you have an alternative you can see suddenly something you, it puts it in perspective mm. you've got an alternative you see you see things truly for what they are and you can pull back detach and go i don't like that this is better or you don't at the moment there isn't and i think one of the great faults lies with the left who say they do want change I mean, the real change at the moment is coming from a strange, weird mixture of right-wing nationalism and racism, as far as I can see. Yes, but Whereas that the left are... are failing to offer any alternative. Yes, alternative visions. So what you're saying is that the alternative visions are always going to come from the periphery or from the subculture, and that the left is unable to provide a, a legitimate and genuine alternative. They're, in fact, involved in a rhetorical exchange now. Though. It feels more and more like rhetoric. I mean, I I point out in the film how strange it is that in the recent years, all the attempts to change the world radically, which had a great deal of force behind them, the Occupy movement, the Arab Spring and Tahrir Square in particular in Egypt, Syriza in Europe, Mm. all have stalled. They had great power behind them. They had great goodwill behind them, and they stalled. And I argue in the film it's because they confused process with content that they did they that they assembled they were very powerful they had a great slogan behind them in the occupy movement great deal of emotional goodwill from people who would not normally support revolutionary movements and they just stopped so what so that tells us two things one it tells us that the the, the bleak observation one can make is that there is no coherent clear alternative vision but the other thing is that there is a desire for change. Yes. That's the, the positive thing that we can draw from that, that yes. when a Saritza or Podemos or whatever rises up, in those cases from, I suppose, more close to the, to the left, if not a traditional leftist movement because it's embracing technology and sort of populism in some ways that seem novel, if not entirely new, uh, there, there is a, a, a genuine appetite for it. Yes. What do you imagine 
Adam, is the what? What is the problem? That that what? I mean, in a way, why would we expect if the world is changing as radically as it is, if as a result of technology and sort of a racing or rapidly advancing? economic realities that, that a conventional and traditional left would be the answer why would we imagine that i mean in a sense these are centuries old ideas that have not been modified because we're no longer living in a version of 20th century capitalism are we so why would like so why would 20th century socialism be a response to it in a way i argue in the film where i try and demonstrate journalistically in the film that we, no we're not living in the old idea of capitalism that we used to think about what we've shifted into is a a new system of power which i see as being fundamentally managerial it's it there are vast new bureaucracies around us including things on the internet but but also in finance and in and in management systems in all the places that many people work in and their aim is to essentially keep the world stable I mean, that's what finance is desperate to do. It's, it's always wanting to monitor the world, looking for risk. Risk is a fascinating word. I, I, I did a, this is how boring I am. I did a word search on LexisNexis, which is the cuttings file of all newspapers. Up until about 1988, 1990, the word risk hardly features in, in journalism. I mean, it's obviously there. And then suddenly in the 90s, it rises up. And it's this, what drives modern managerial capitalism, if you can give it a word, like that, is this desire to avoid instability, to mm -hmm. always m analyse the past, look for patterns that are happening now that look like dangers in the past, mm. and then adjust. Yes. That There's always a sort of a, a right thing to be. And I, yes. th I see it in our own personalities as well. There's always a right way to be psychologically. There's always a right body mass index to have. There is always the right stable thing to be. I understand. Now one can insert, for, like, for stability one can place conservatism keep things the way they are stop things for from changing and i don't necessarily mean conservative in the conventional political conservative party i mean don't let things change and for risk the tool that's being used to preserve this uh this stasis it, uh, fear is a synonym so that fear is being used fear of change yes that's it, it's very deep not just within the conservative mindset but also within the liberal mindset in our society is fear of change look what happens when you try and change things yes they point to iraq for example look what happens when you try and change a country they point to nature and they say look what happens when you try and change an ecosystem mm. you can never tell the consequences of it and then they point back and they go well look what you try and do with the russian revolution look what happened there so you <laughs> it's terrible isn't it like so you have this person being blamed look what you tried to do the oh no i'm sorry <laughs> but what they ignore is the fact that you live in a society Society that comes out of a revolution which has got fantastic and wonderful freedoms in it. it we had a revolution in this country it can be good but it can be dangerous at the moment we, we live in a static world where we're absolutely terrified of all change whereas someone like me would argue is that change can be dangerous but can also be thrilling Yes, of course. Now, of course, someone like you would argue that Now, what, what I think is very interesting about what you're saying, Mr Curtis is that... Um, like when I like listen to arguments that, I can, that can be sort of rather complex, one of the things I very much enjoy about your films is the, the accessibility and the populism probably coming from your in, inaugural Sausages, the movie, in which a dog says sausages. Or it seems to, because Mr Curtis revealed to me that the man m manipulates the dog's 
larynx so the dog probably wouldn't have said sausages if left alone long enough what i i think is that what is the ultimate resource of all of these things and don't be afraid of a little bit of comedy adam curtis it's our little it's our little pal allow the gnomic peculiar presence the elfin presence of mischief to be present in the room allow a tendril or two to advance up your thigh <laughs> Look at you! Also being also schoolmasterly. Today. No, I'm pondering whether you use comedy as a way of defence. I use it as a means for attack, as a matter of fact. So w- what I'm saying is, is that all of these things come from the, the personal. Like when you talk about keep things, like because one of the themes of your hypernormalisation is we're saying, oh well, who's like you know the politicians aren't powerful. That's one of the great tropes of our age. Doesn't matter if you switch out Cameron for Theresa May or indeed anybody, because there's a self seems to be some self regulating system that asserts stability regardless of what uh, opposing force are placed in its way. Now we're like who then is asserting this power where is this power upon which we can't get any purchase that evidently isn't the political establishment as we understand it where is this power actually situated would you say it's as simple as there that you know follow the money it's the great economic interest global economic interest this is a good place to start as any i think it's it's in these giant bureaucracies which have grown up which are intimately related to our politics like finance mm. i mean the interesting thing about the 1980s is everyone thinks that thatcher and reagan really were successful but actually if you look back increasingly historians are looking back and going no they weren't they, they came in saying they were going to regenerate industry but by about 1986 87 most of the industries in britain and america had collapsed because of the economic experiment so what thatcher and reagan did was they said to, they turned to finance and they said can you help us? I mean, this is effectively what happened. Mm. And what finance did said is, well, we'll lend them money. Wages weren't going up. Wages were actually collapsing at that point. So what happened is you had a switch and they gave power to finance. And finance came in and introduced the idea of lending on a much grander scale. I mean, the politicians allowed that because they facilitated all sorts of new acts of parliament that allowed all that lending to happen. So what you got is a shift away from the idea that you were on a constant travelator of increased wages, increased security in the industries you worked in. The, the, your income stagnated and it was supplemented by lending money. So finance, for example, got a great deal of power. Now, underlying finance is a deep desire to keep the world stable, to avoid chaotic situations. So we began to move into that Mm. world where we're always trying to avoid Mm. risk. What then that happens is that that idea begins to spread out, not just literally in terms of you lending money, but the idea of avoiding risk becomes a central thing in our society. And I would argue that we've all become terrified of change. One of the things I've sort of intuited... Which is conservative. Yes, of course, of course. Uh, One of the things I've intuited, but not yet fully articulated because I imagine it's rather complex and I have a tendency to be a bit sort of uh, ad hoc shoot from the hip spit from the lip ask questions later type of a character is that chaos and the use of chaos is required that there's this sense in me that the induction of chaos will be beneficial when looking at the sort of contemporary politics I've felt as you have articulated and from my own experience with the truth and one of the reasons I was very keen to have you as a guest as a matter of fact Adam is because like uh, I got sort of like waist deep in like uh, political discourse getting Ed Miliband round the flat and interviewing him and sort of being very outspoken in him 
what became a very combative and uh, what I want to say dialectic kind of difficult exchange with Britain's media particularly is that I felt like this is really hard to get any traction it felt I felt very quickly mired you know and like being around like the political class you know it, it, albeit briefly around Ed Miliband and his parachutes it felt like this doesn't seem like it it felt like a very sort of a kind of jangly and neurotic sort of coterie of people I didn't think like oh this is the, the advancement of power and then from like being the recipient of the kind of um, sort of uh, what I would say a curtailing and managing forces from the media. That was interesting as well. It felt like it's, it's so, so interesting to become the subject of such negativity, not only from sort of established media, but from people in general. Because when you talk about change, when you talk about chaos, when you talk about, you know, like people, like it's very interesting. Like that, what I felt like is like in the story, The Emperor's New Clothes, is like that in the end you'd say to that kid, just shut up, stop saying that about the emperor. You're ruining this parade. Like that in the end people get angry to, like people get angry with you. If you say something like, Oh, it doesn't make any difference who you vote for. You'll get the same political system anyway. People know that's true and they know it's wrong. And so they become angry with, in this case, me for saying it instead of like sort of thinking, well, bloody hell, that is a pain in the arse that that's reality, that that's true. Or you know, so, so what, you know, now I find myself interested in sort of bigger and broader topics, like, you know, both historically and sort of, uh, uh, you know, not historically, history. I think, well, what is likely to be the next transition? Given that, you know, like in your film Hypernormalisation and like you've just said, it seems that the political world is at least a once-removed narrative that doesn't seem to respond to protest, doesn't seem to respond to activism. It merely absorbs it, digests Siritz, uh, presumably Podemos. It can handle the Occupy movement and as you've said in in, in hypernormalization and in, in other aspects of your work, that people that have got an established idea, which usually comes from religion, like the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, when people can go, look, we have got an idea, it's this, it's, it's sort of fundamentalist Islam, that those, those ideas are more potent and powerful. What do you think that we can learn from that or take from that? But you see, I think that why it doesn't have any traction mm. change it's as, it's our fault as much as them you can't just blame the politicians mm. it's us as well one of the great enormous changes of our time is the rise of individualism mm. it's the it started really in the 1970s in in modern terms and it's this idea that you and I believe that what we want and what we think and what we feel is the only authentic thing and we shouldn't be told what to do by people yeah it's really strong. It's really powerful. And it, 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 Mrs. Thatcher was on the coattails of it. Uh, punk movement was on the coattails of it. it was, it's really, it's, it dominates our society. And the problem for politics of the rise of individualism is that it can't deal with it. Politics requires you to say to people as a political party, come with me, join with us together, and we will use that collective power to change the world. Mm. But to do that, you have to accept that you're part of something. You have to surrender yourself to something. And for the radical movements, that was a disaster. But more than that, it was a disaster for politics generally mm, because mm. political parties fell away. So what then politicians... No, let me finish. What politicians... I'm hardly then, being aggressive. <laughs> what, <laughs> I'm not Jeremy Paxman. No, this is <laughs> this is important thing, which I, I don't think... Because it's not just the politicians. Mm. What they were then faced by is the fact that they didn't have mass support. Yes. So they couldn't do the, the main thing that mass democratic politics rose up to do, yes. which is to be your representative, your bridgehead, into power. 
because we had become like scurrying little piglets going all over the world. And not you jo- may have become a scurrying piglet. I've been a strident antelope. And not joining together not to, to form a collective action. Yeah? I understand that. Now, what, there's one of the things I want to pick up on that. When you say something like, Adam, this is, please God, a popular podcast, right? So when we say something like the rise of individualism, what you're, what you're saying is that, like, you know, like, I think we can all say that I primarily, my worldview comes from, but I'm me, I'm Russell, I want this, I don't like that, I've got rights, I've got feelings. Now, like, you know, that, that's something that people haven't really examined individualism as a component and uh, sort of an unavoidable evolution of uh, a mechanistic worldview and of materialism now like what you say like make, make a point that this became chronic or more noticeable in the 70s so my assumption would be then that this condition of individualism is a side effect of marketing of like the, the reason why is it convenient for people to see themselves primarily as individuals because that's how people are better consumers no it's not a side effect of marketing marketing comes in to make it work. Individualism comes basically out of the hippie movement, the counterculture movement of the 1960s, where you were encouraged to be authentic by responding to yourself. That was the idea. And it was a reaction against what was seen as conformity. And it was a reaction against old style of politics where you were told what to do. It was just, I want to do what I want to be. You know, it was just that that's what happened. And it, and it was about finding the authentic self. Yes, but that was a, defined as much as anything else by its cohesion and by its pursuit of civil civil liberties. These were people that were were like you know a lot of change came out of that on a on a civil rights level in the United no, States around is, race. That's absolutely true, but that didn't come out of the hippie movement. The civil rights movement, mm. which, which is an incredibly important movement in in the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties. White activists and black activists joined together and they spent years giving their lives, in many cases literally, up to trying to change the world, which they did. And they surrendered themselves to that. Out of that civil rights movement came what was called the New Left. And the New Left said, well, if we can do this for civil rights, we can do this for everything. And then the movement stalled somewhere in the mid-1960s because what began to happen was a new, what was called counterculture, rose up. And the counterculture was different from the new left because what the counterculture said was you're never going to tackle the man, the power. You haven't got the power to do it. The way to do it is to change yourself. It was the rise, it was the, it was the sign of a, of, of a new individualism. It didn't want to be part of, it didn't want to go down to the south and spend years in, in anonymity and danger trying to change the world. It wanted to change... Yeah, it, I don't want to go down the south. No, you're... years you're, in anonymity and danger. If I might say so, you are an arch example of hyper-individualism of our time. I don't know if I like this. I'm going to write that down or look that up when I get in. All your responses are characteristic of exactly what I'm describing. So what then happened is that the, the, the argument shifted away from the idea of saying we can work together to change the world to saying, no, if we can actually be, be the vanguard of changing ourselves as people, then you change society like that. You change the people first and then society will transform. Mm. And that sort of worked for a bit, but then bit by bit the politics moved away and you were left with this idea you just transform yourself and you have all these radical psychotherapy movements of the 1970s come up which is you need to find your authentic feelings mm. that became the goal and the idea that you're actually changing society as a byproduct began to disappear and what then happened was that this strange thing 
began to emerge is if you are going to be a self-expressive individual, which was the ultimate goal, where you're authentically expressing yourself, how do you do it? Because actually not many people knew or had the confidence to do that. And I argued in a series of films I made that, that really what happened was that modern consumer capitalism said, oh, we can help you do that. We can actually supply you with lots of different things to allow you to express yourself, from ranges of cars to ranges of clothes to all sorts of products that you can use to express your individual identity, which was fantastic for consumer capitalism because they could make lots more different things. Yes, but you're not saying then that consumerism, like that, you're saying that consumerism and mass market culture was a, a response yes. to that need. Yes. That's interesting, because like, I'm, as you know, a fan of the films of Century of the Self, which doesn't qualify me to know more about them than you because you've made those films. <laughs> but, like, what it means to... But what, how I... See, I said, look, on one level, we're de- the source material for all of this is human beings' feelings. So even when you say something like I'm an arch example of individualism, for me that means that I'm closer to, to the precipice of breaking through, to realising the limitations of individualism and what the implications of the individualism's limits are, which is you know, transcendence, what happens when one once more transcends willingly and with volition through the limitations of individualism and back to a communal experience and back to a cohesive uh, experience as a member of a tribe, of a community, of a society. Experiences that are somewhat denied us, a pathway that's somewhat being dug up. It's not, so it's no longer clear wh- what is the direction for people that feel this yearning and feel the limitations of our experience of individuals, of forever living in our head, of living in our anxieties, of not knowing what is real because we're living in a very limited version of what is real, the fulfilment of our base mm. drives and base d- desires. That's a limited experience of being human who, who are anthropologically, histor- historically, are designed to live communally connected as a harmonious part of a group and a harmonious part of nature. Now, what's interesting for me about what you said there, Adam, is that like, I've always regarded that, that sort of, yeah, consumerism and mass market culture uh, has r- recognised, oh, right, there's this need in people that can be fulfilled through selling them stuff. You buy, you know, buy your own unique iPad, iPad, iPod, buy your own unique torn jeans, participate in culture and express your individualism through consuming. But I suppose what we've not yet got to is the the architecture of these consecutive phenomena. Like, do you think there's someone behind it designing this or or some interest? Because, like, when you're saying these bureaucracies are organising the stasis and stability, like the financial bureaucracy, you know, who benefits from this? Who benefits from people seeing themselves primarily as individuals? Because it certainly isn't the people of the Yemen and it certainly isn't us as individuals. So who is it that's preventing change from happening? Yes, of course, us, because we're, you know, you can say we're not participating in a co- in a in a like a potent movement because one doesn't seem to currently exist but what is the what is the, why is this idea continuing to dominate i think the point is about consumer capitalism is that capitalism is not a it's not an inherently evil thing it's no. a it's amoral it will always spot an opportunity and it will go for it and what it spotted in the late 1970s that were the, that were these people rising up who wanted to be themselves mm. and they realized that that allowed you to make lots of a much wider range of products than you had previously done before and people went for it and that allowed capitalism to make lots more money and become much more you know you saw all those adverts in the 1980s and 1990s express yourself be yourself through nike just do it it. it. you're great exactly because i'm worth it was the great phrase Mm. but then what happened 
was the, I think a great shift happened, which we haven't fully recognised, which is sort of what I'm trying to get at in the film, is that is the genius of modern power is that it managed to do what politics failed to do. Politics can't deal with individualism because how can you have a political party where everyone wants to be an individual and not be part of something? Mm -hmm. What modern managerial systems managed to do was square the circle. Look at modern social media. It manages to allow you to feel that you are totally yourself, expressing yourself online, typing angrily or beautifully or whatever you want to do out into the, into the internet what you feel all the time. Yet at the same time, what you are is a component in a series of very complex circuits that is looking at you doing that and saying, oh, hang on, if he's doing that, then he's very much like these people over here, which we've categorised like that. So we can say back to that person in the circuit, oh, if you're doing that, would you like this as well? And you go, oh, yeah, all right, because it's a bit like what you've just done. Yeah. And it makes you sort of feel secure within your individuality. So what they've managed to do increasingly the modern systems of management, is accept your individualism and your expressiveness, allow you to feel that you're being more and more expressive, whilst at the same time managing you quietly and happily so you become part of a very large group that you don't see because you're just a little component in the circuit. But the computers look at you and go, oh, well, there's about 300 million of those sort of types. We'll put them in that group. And I'm, it's not a conspiracy. It's not a group of people going, oh, we'll do this. It's a system that can see from the information that it's reading from you and lots of other people the patterns that you are part of and saying, well, we'll fit them all together into that pattern. Absolutely. So sort of complex interlocks taxonomies that are designed ultimately to go, if you like this, you'll probably like, like that. that. And it's benign in their terms. The, the, if you talk to the tech utopians from, from Silicon Valley, they will go, this is incredibly efficient. And they're right. It's an incredibly efficient way mm. of managing the problem that politicians can't manage, which is our individuality and our desire to be self-expressive. Yes. Its problem is, is that it's fundamentally conservative because it's feeding back to you more of what it knows you Don't like. Don't take risks or things will change. Yeah. A bit so like um, a bit like Christianity in a way offered a kind of have a your own personal interaction with Christ, your own personal salvation. Christ loves you as an individual. Yes, you could argue that modern Protestantism, especially, was again another way of trying to deal with the the growing desire for individuality, which has been going on since the. I don't know, the Renaissance or before, the Enlightenment, this idea that you want to be yourself. So mm. Protestantism said, mm. no, you, you don't have to be what Catholicism says is just part of something you're told to do. You can have a personal relationship to God. And there is a, 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 a very important posh academic book written back in the early part of the 20th century which argues by a man called Max Weber that argues that Protestantism and the idea that you have a personal relationship to God was one of the great motor forces that allowed capitalism to come up because if you can actually achieve a relationship through your own actions with God and achieve salvation then you can actually say well I can achieve all sorts of things myself in the here and now before I die which may save me for when I die. So it actually made you more of a heroic figure, Protestantism. 
certainly that advances the idea of individualism. You as the sort of star of your own life, accruing goods and services. Yes. So that when you when you die, you will you will be a good person and you will go to heaven, and that that gave capitalism this idea that it was a fundamentally good thing to try and achieve. You were you were work, and you see this in the nineteenth century novels where they depict great capitalists. They see themselves as heroic figures who are not only helping the world but they're saving themselves. Yes. I suppose, in a way, don't we have to get beyond the kind of a dualistic judgments of like ideas like capitalism, socialism, or or any individual as either good or bad? And sort of, is it like that we need to sort of look at functionally what's occurring? Well, like this seems to have very positive results. This seems to have very detrimental results. And when you're talking about this uh, online collation and people being put together into three hundred million man or woman herds that, uh, that can be marketed to, and as you say, it's benign. This thing's not ha- this not happening in a vacuum. Is it? There is like, see, when you're talking these, that 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 is the exertion, and that's the exercise. That's the exercising of power we're witnessing witnessing there, Adam. That's not happening sort of in an arbitrary and natural way because the people's interests are being represented through those resources. Facebook is not neutral. One of the things that I'm sort of learning about, because you know I'm going to university because you very kindly wrote me my reference, which I've not yet seen and I would like to see because I want to know what kind of things uh, you said about me. I think I said you were sweet and adorable. (laughs) You'll be a sweet and adorable student. (laughs) I hope that, right, now looking at the context you're using that in, it makes me think that you thought sweet and adorable was patronising, which uh, I suppose in a way it is. But it's also, if being nice is patronising, then I'm patronising. So one of the things I'm learning about in that, Adam Curtis, is uh, like the the way that secularism, and and just uh, for those of you that are a new listener to this type of podcast, uh, the division of church and state, the division of political interest and religious interest, uh, has always posed as a neutral force. And and its expansionism and uh, interventionalism has been justified by that. We can go over to Iraq and stick our oar in because we're a secular society, a neutral society, and they're doing all sorts of wacko stuff with uh, where their governor's got a moustache and medals and that and they need to be uh, brought down a peg or two. Now, this uh, positing as neutral, of whether it's secularism or the sort of cyber world, is one of the ways that power has always concealed itself by saying, this isn't power at all. This is normal, you know, uh, sort of... So, yes, so this is normal. Markets are like, so sort of, uh, sort of a capitalism derived from Protestantism, normal, Islam, not normal, and therefore subject to regulation. That's right, Someone once said the great the, the sign of a great ideology is something that doesn't look like an ideology that you just accept as natural and normal. So, for example, if you talk to technological enthusiasts or utopians from Silicon Valley, and you talk about Facebook shutting people off into their own little echo chambers, they'll say, "But it's efficient." And what they mean by that is it works. It's actually dealing with the problem I was talking about of individualism, and it's allowing people to to be assembled in groups, yet feel individuals. And they're absolutely right. It is incredibly efficient. But maybe the whole idea of efficiency used in those terms is actually a political ideology because what they're saying is we constantly keep people in this situation by reading stuff and feeding stuff to them. And that's conservative. That's a conservative idea because then people get, get, they get frightened of change. And if you get frightened of change then you're actually feeding the power. Yeah. And what I keep on trying to point out in this film is that real power works not just... It doesn't work by saying, you must do this. It works well when we are complicit within it because we accept it as natural. Yeah. 
Yes. yes? And, and we are guilty of that. So, for example, do you remember the, the um, march against the war in Iraq in, in London in 2003? I think it was something like three million people went on that march. Do I remember it? I couldn't get my cab anywhere. The traffic around Marble Arthur was terrible. Did you go on it? I was too on drugs to care about that. Actually, I think I did go, but I was still too on drugs to care about it. But the interesting thing about that march is that it was really the biggest, probably the biggest protest march since the Suez thing in 1956, or even bigger. And everyone thought, that's going to change everything. Yeah. And then everyone went, and they had a slogan which was, not in my name, which is, again, a very individualistic slogan. I don't like it as a slogan, do you? Well, I thought Not in my name, you th- bloody well don't. What I'm doing it in your name? I'm doing it because we've got some oil over there we've got to get. I thought it was an interesting <laughs> slogan of its time. Yeah. I don't like the pomposity of it. No, Not but it's more my, than or that. Or the sincerity. You, everyone marched. Three million people marched, and they were totally sincere about it. Not in my name, and they then went home. All right, it's not in your name. And they said, "Well, that's not <laughs> a war." Of, well, that's exactly what what the implication was. Yeah. You you go back, and the war is not in my name. That's not one in my so name. So then though. you don't know anything more about it. Whereas real change, real political change, would have happened if those three million people had again and again and again marched and again and worked and given themselves to that they might well have had a chance of stopping the horror that has now happened in Iraq. So in a way, like Adam, I've heard you argue before that you know stability is the enemy of change, and we are obviously participants in this because we're like, oh, do you know what? I don't know if I will be going on a million-person march every day because I've got an Xbox and I'm moderately comfortable. Isn't, in fact, the ingenuity of uh, much of contemporary secular life is that we, for a significant majority, we are sustained at a comfortable level and we can tolerate in our insular self of comfort, the discomfort of others, because our empathy and altruism has been eroded. These impulses and instincts have long been undernourished because the sort of familiar communal institutions have themselves begun to disappear. Well, protest becomes feeling. Well, yes, it does, Adam. And actually, that shouldn't be to our disadvantage, because when you sort of talk about me as the arch-narcissist of our time, uh, what I think this means is, is like that through all things... Did you notice returning to the point makes my point for me, that you are the arch-narcissist of our time? I did it as a passing comment. No, because it's something that I'm... I'm interested in because I actually think it's legitimate as well as a sort of a, a glib aside that, you know, that, that sort of what is it about my, my personal conditions and the conditions of our time that make me so, that, that make me so uh, infatuated with myself and my own perceptions? Because in a way, how is that different from, you know, really from anybody else? It's not really, it's more pronounced, it's more observable. I don't imagine that it's any, like, you know, how would anyone possibly know? Because no one except me knows how to be inside my own consciousness and I'm not even sure that I'm that convinced of how to do it. Now, my, my point is, is that everything's at source is people's negotiation with the external world at source everything is the way i feel when i'm interfacing with a society or another human being or a product or my own feelings coming back to me and because i have experienced many of the sort of the, the sort of the icons of success or the icons of consuming you know have been you know been famous being a proper drug addict, being proper promiscuous. I've like seen, oh right, these things are not that nutritional or that helpful. You know, so it's helped me to reach a point where I'm willing to consider ideas such as 
being part of a community you know and like isn't uh, the word don't islam it means surrender right you know sort of like the, and the idea of surrender comes up again and again in, in sort of spiritual and religious ideologies that these drives in fact it was you that once said to me like you know like a uh, We've been told that freedom is freedom to fulfill our trivial and petty desires, but real freedom is freedom from our petty and trivial desires. That, you know, in being able to sort of buy yourself an iPhone or have a wank in a train toilet, you may think of this as a kind of blissful utopia. But what have you just fobbed yourself off with? In my case, it was a £10 fine. <laughs> Don't be so serious. Why are you being so serious today? Well, I decided you're, you're the funny guy. So. <laughs> that doesn't matter. We can all be we can all be silly together. You know what other kind of, like so the, so the reason I'm using like returning. No, to I wanted to make a serious point at that point. That's why I was looking serious. It's because <laughs> no, 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 because you've touched on something really important. I mean, I it is it is really, train toilet. No, that the, there are. I'm it's it's to not kiss you to calm you down because it's obviously necessary. I consider this a form of resuscitation. This is as necessary as if you were lying on a beach. Now, so you're all clever in those edits <laughs> with your archive, but really, what he needs is a cuddle. Now, come on. I think I'm actually trying to show that I don't want to be controlled by your comedic persona. Oh, that's the power of comedy. It's very controlling. Yes, but it is. That's what I, my point is. And I am as much an, a, a narcissist as you. I want to set the agenda as well. Right. And what I want to use that. That's the trail. And what, <laughs> <laughs> and what I wanted to point out was that it's not that, that, that there is the real kind of freedom is, in, is a religious one. It's a different kind of freedom. There are all different kinds of freedom. Mm. And the idea of freedom that we believe in now and we believe is inevitable and natural and natural to our state is not. It's a construction. The version of us at the moment is a const of freedom is a construction because there are many others. And one of the most powerful is the very opposite, which is a religious one, which says, in whose service is perfect freedom. Is, and what the, what the religious idea is that the self, which we worship at the moment, is actually a terrible prison. It's a mm. cage that you are trapped. And again, you're an example of this in, your, in, in what you've talked about. No, it's in what you've talked about prison. often. Is that I'm when you give in, young offenders home. <laughs> when you get trapped Day by trips. your own short-term desires, it's a cage. You get you get locked. Into yes, it. it's circuitous. I mean, even neurologically, one can imagine that the, the process of consuming is a stimuli yeah. and response and, loop that and you that get maybe trapped you, in. Maybe maybe it's good to escape from that daily grind of of having to listen to your consciousness constantly saying, "I want this, I want this, I want this." I mean, which, actually, which we are encouraged to believe is liberation. Yes, maybe it's not. No, I think you're quite right. I mean, when I like, uh, like even sort of quite pop spiritual orators such as Eckhart Tolle will say to you that this like incessant inner narrative, mm. the relentless thinking, there's, there's no freedom in that, you know. And so, and watch where those thoughts take you. Sometimes, you know, I sort of I'm on, like I'm walking my dog in a field, so everything's basically like the reality, this material reality is i am a man in a field with a dog and then in my head what's happening is oh god what did i do that for this will probably go wrong what's going to happen who are those people over there oh i'm not throwing that stick again he keeps bringing it back you know so that is a, there is a like a sort of a self-imposed tyranny to that and i don't you know and obviously like you have just uh, sort of implied capitalism or consumerism or modern culture whatever the hell it is isn't going to solve that in fact it perpetuates that well, because the interesting thing about time is you're right. The, the, the people live inside their heads very much mm. because they're encouraged to. They're encouraged to think that is the, that is the end point. That's yes. what we're heading towards. Yes. But, but actually, 
what's going on in those heads are things that people don't really want to tell. Ooh. All the sort of things that... Fear, loneliness, that, doubt. Fear, loneliness, doubt. Because actually, if you are going to be the right kind of individual... Don't have that. You mustn't have that. And you, you see this on social it? media at the moment. Everyone, the, the, the politician who is going to get real power and take us somewhere in the future is going to have to deal with the things that are inside Here our heads, which is loneliness and fear. I'm and a doubt. bit lonely fright. Uh, I woke up this morning, I was ever so lonely, and I'll tell you something else. God, I was shit scared. <laughs> it took me a half hour to get my bloody pyjamas on. Before I knew it, what's that? I'm lonely. I'm on the stairs, coming down. Bloody one of my slippers has fallen off. That scared me stiff. I poured out my shreddies. Bloody things. Maybe I feel lonelier than ever. Then I see Tony the Tiger on the box of Frosties. Well, I was scared witnessed. It's great. It's too bloody late, Tony, I said to him. Don't use this as a little opportunity to have a sip of water. So anyway, like what people obviously want is a set, like, you know, the solution to this. There are two solutions. There's the... Uh, to submit there's a subjugation of self self in terms of you know because of course self is an amorphous idea isn't it also we're talking about the kind of self which is this sort of relentless driven inner narrative the, the two ways I have found because I've had to do this because being serious for a while to snatch your mantle of pompous pious old bagpuss for 10 seconds I myself have had to battle quite because I believe that the disease of addiction has at its core a kind of circuitous self-centeredness that can only be ended well first by the removal of the initial substance that one identifies with in my case it was like crack and heroin at the time I got clean once those things gone you recognise those drives are still present you think what is it and like you become obsessed with food you become obsessed with sex you become obsessed with work and other people's opinion and in the end, you recognise that the only way to end this this the, the, the torture of self-obsession is through ideas that have always been present in spiritual and religious doctrine. Service, connection. In, in What was that? In his service, we in, are free. In whose service is perfect freedom. In whose service is perfect you freedom. You give yourself up to something beyond yourself. So beautiful. Even give yourself up is an idiom that implies that there is an upward transcendent trajectory. The other, I mean, the other interesting area that... That, that in this is is the modern ideas of love are about satisfying yourself. Yes. Whereas the old idea of love was that you live you you surrender yourself to someone else, mm. and it's thrilling but frightening because you 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 give yourself up, and that kind of love has disappeared. It will Except, come back. I'm sure. Would you say your love for me is a little bit like that? You're a bit like a sort of a modern archive troubadour. Making wonderful... I know that hypernormalisation was in some level dedicated to me. It could have been called hyper-Russell Brandization. Because actually, remember I love you, so you're quite safe. <laughs> so funny. It's like sort of like a school teacher that's agree that agreed to come and babysit and now being pilloried with confusing love. I don't want to go to bed yet. I want to watch the Muppet Show. You can't watch the Muppet Show, Russell. It's already been on. If you just last week's one, let's watch last week's one. <laughs> so actually, I am. Um, look, what I want to get from you is this. Now, what you've just then said is like someone that's going to make headway in the political sphere, and you know, and obviously, like I assume on some level that'll be me. Is go is like someone that will know how to close that gap between the solipsistic circuitry yes. of self-obsession and this world out here that you, we're all forced to you bloody can't live put, in. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. You just can't. The, mm. the individualism is here to stay. It's, it's, it's part of the future. Mm. Um, what, what a politician of the future who is going to change the world will do is somehow allow people to still feel they're individuals, yet at the same time will say, if you come together, we can actually transform the world into something extraordinary. 
and 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 it will be thrilling, but it will also be frightening. And and take them into that world. No one's managed to do it. At the moment, what's happened is a lot of the managerial systems have managed to make people feel they're individuals, but manage them. Mm. And we've got to transcend that. I mean, I think it may somehow come out of the internet in some way or another. Yes, because it's a mass communication yes. tool, after and at all. The moment, and it can create constituencies globally. They're yes. not defined by geography, but, state, but and at, old ideas. But at the moment, the technologists, the engineering people who dominate it, apply an engineering model to it. And engineering models are about feedback. And they say they constantly read you in the past and feed more back to you. Mm. It doesn't have to be like that. But yes. it needs what it needs is a content, a, a vision of the future. Yes, and yes. it hasn't got one at the moment. I'll work it out by the end of the podcast. Now, well, let's talk about some of the more prosaic uh, aspects of uh, uh, contemporary life. What do you think of old Trumpkin's pumpkin then? What do you think? Why is this happening? I have a very cynical theory about Donald Trump. Go on. Well, as as politics became more and more deracinated and what does that mean deracinated thinned out deracinated and, and and sort of less and less substantial and less and less able to change things or confidently able to change things and power shifted away to all sorts of other things that we were participating in mm. Really what people like Trump are is they've become... They're not really politicians. They're pantomime villains. They've turned politics into a vaudeville. And what they do is they come on stage and we go, this is outrageous in big capitals. <laughs> this is absolutely terrible. We, pu- we tap away on social media saying, this is really, really, really bad. Mm. And as I say in the film, a, 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 a marketeer for online said me once, angry people click more. And mm. clicks are gold dust. Yes. And really what those clicks do is feed modern power. Mm. And everything stays the same. And How do you mean feed modern power, Adam? Well, if you, if, if you click a lot, yeah. you're actually... That's what social, those who run social media benefit from. You're actually keeping the whole thing churning over. Do you I mean, think there's a lot of power in that world? If you have something like Facebook, which in its news feeds increasingly gives you what it knows you like and what you you and what and, and what you hear is what you like then that's incredibly powerful because you're it's shaping actually, people's reality because you are shaping what they know and you're shaping above all what you don't know now hmm. those who run social media will say this is efficient they're not they're not ideologists they're not saying we must tell them this and in fact it's the algorithms that are doing that of course they've designed the algorithms but the algorithms function is to give you more of what it knows you like because that's efficient mm. but look at what that means that means that you only know what others like you know and then there's another group over there who know what they know, the, the others in their group know, and they never meet. I mean, there's a fascinating quote on the day after Brexit from a social media activist who was a Remainer. He wanted to remain, but he wanted to find out what the other lot felt like, who were the triumphant that day. And he went onto Facebook and he tried to find through the custom feeds people like that. He couldn't do it. And he was actually shocked. I won't read you the whole quote, but it's it's absolutely fascinating. It's a man realising that there are two halves of the world now so separated from each other that one half can't actually actively go and find out what the other half is feeling. Now, that's called power. Now, I don't think that in Facebook there is anyone saying, this is the world we want. They're saying, this is efficient. But that look what that efficiency is. It's a conservative world that holds things stable. 
And implicitly, what that means is that things aren't going to change. And what that means is that those who are in power remain, remain in power. power. So power, can, yeah, power cannot move as so long power as that can, continues. cannot move. Exactly. And really, what well, revolution is about reordering, reorganising power, distribution of power, redistribution of resources. So yes. a powerful forces for stasis, however uh, anodyne they may present themselves as being, if not benign, yes. then, then they are, in fact, the agents of yes. the establishment. Yes. And then also in those chambers, anyone in, those, in your little network mm. or big network who comes along and says something that the others don't like gets absolutely ejected immediately. The book that that journalist John Ronson wrote about what what it's like being shamed on social media is a very good sort of anthropological example of what happens to people within a network who say the wrong thing. It's like being in a village in the medieval times. You're just ejected if you're the wrong person. You're thrown out out of town, out of the city limits. So, every, so like everyone, everyone remains, remains thinking the same. And that's conservative. But yes. we're complicit in it. And, what's, and everyone, everyone knows it. They know it. Yes, this is one of the things that I'm very much interested in. You've said this several times, and there's a bit in my stand-up of like talking about the morning after Cameron's election, and he gives that speech. And the, well, the thing it struck me on a quite personal level, actually, because the speech that he gives, like the speech that Theresa May gives, like the speech that you often hear politicians give, is kind of utopian. We're, we're going to build a Britain where people that are prepared to work are going to get the opportunities they need, where the most vulnerable members of society will be looked after. It won't matter what your religion or your race is, you'll be taken care of. We'll build a cohesive Britain where everyone can participate. You think, fucking hell, if that, what you were saying then was the reality, that would be okay. But I know that what you're saying is bullshit, and you know that it's bullshit, and you know that we know it's bullshit, yes. and yes, it is perpetuated. Now, for me, this is That's the distillation of hypernormalization, is the disjunct. Now, this other idea of that there being two uh, tandem narratives concurrently running takes place, doesn't it? You don't need to consult the external world to get ratification of that, but it because hap- it happens internally as well on individual levels of any individual's consciousness, that one senses there's the part of, there is the part of me that is married to the fulfillment of my stimulation there's the part of me that just goes look you know that would just happily use this podcast as right okay there what is another way that i can assert myself in the public conversation and in public life powerfully how can i get because you know like all right, i've tried sort of you know vanilla fame of being a sort of hollywood actor now i've had this sort of like this activism fame and that weren't quite fulfilling what's the next version proper religious spiritual devotion now that will that will do it there is like you know so these things though in a way the stimuli is the same you know the object is shifting hollywood fame money drugs sex the object is shifting but the drive remains the same now it's only through like you know it's only through a kind of a sense of actual detachment relinquishing and service that i can alter the kind of i don't know the modem i can uh, that i can alter the engine the sort of if there is such a thing as an essential self beyond the biochemical drives, beyond the biographical recollections, if there is some self, if consciousness is something and not nothing, not some inadvertent byproduct of the whirring of the mind, the brain rather, then then there is surely some value in this in in attaching to this you know like this quite simple and religious idea of service. I, I do think that the one thing that's going to come back onto the table is religion. Because I think the real weakness of the modern systems of managing us as individuals is that it cannot deal with our own mortality. Mm. Because the great... I mean, I'm more, what's the word, prosaic and functional than you are about religion. But I do think its, its main function in society has been to give people consolation in the face of their own death. That the sense that 
that when they die, something will go on and they will be part of something that's going on. It's, mm. it's really powerful and it's really necessary. And that's the in the modern, rational, efficient, utilitarian, technocratic world of, of managing the individual, it cannot give you any consolation. No. And I think a lot of the pessimism that you find on the left is from, would, that. Is from that. They're but actually they projecting onto the world. That they're saying, it's not me who's going to die, everything's going to die. And, <laughs> and it becomes this sort of terrible, terrible fear of death, which then colours everything, which then stops them being optimistic about changing the world. Yes, that's interesting. And when you said that thing before about fear and loneliness, these again, these are a sort of a, that's an emotional conversation that, that, that they're kind of dry, creaking arguments of socialism is un, 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 unable to have now like I, I think about this also often. Well, they remember that socialism came out of religion, especially in this country. Yeah, in this country, I, I recognise that it does, but it sort of certainly departed from it because of, yes. you know, for understandable reasons around dogma and because of the, you know, sort of the necessity, or like sort of the revolutions of a century or so ago meant that, you know, the, that kind of state, church and state power needed to be sort of redressed and harmonised and somewhat neutered. But for me, what the... What is required is a sort of a um, is to once again distill and recognise what the function of religion actually is to help us deal with the experience yeah. of being yeah. a human being that you know that politics is no longer able to do and no longer aspires to do and which consumerism has artfully done for the previous fifty years but seems to be faltering at this point and now you're saying that these sort of you know and of course we are talking about kind of a niche market really aren't we because most of the world don't sat around on Facebook are they not in like Africa or uh, you know sort of Latin America are they I don't know I'm not there but like so so like you know what we're discussing is is a particular phenomena to our kind of cultures but it's but I obviously agree with you that and in fact even when I was somewhat directly involved in the media and political conversation my that what I felt was this isn't actually it at all that's what I found I felt I felt like this isn't the conversation I want to have this is minutiae and trivia I'm interested in something that is very direct and very real and one can understand a person like what one can like you sort of think that all saints get not the band <laughs> all saints <laughs> reach although they were bloody good and so very I love those sisters like uh, reach the point of you know, altruism, service, surrender. It becomes sort of kind of simple and almost indistinguishable from mental illness in in a lot of cases. I'm talking particularly of St. Francis of Assisi, who you wouldn't want round your gaff, Adam, bringing goats in, ranting and raving, playing the panpipes on the stairwells, <laughs> meddling with your cats, putting them all in jumpers and telling you that they had the spirit of Jesus in them. Because let me tell you, that's what he would do. And like, so like, you know, like, so this hyper normalization, I suppose, what it's doing is, is we're living in a spectacle. And in a way, it's just, it's, now that the words come up, it's pretty similar to some of like De Boer's idea, you know, like sort of late, uh, late 60s situationism, French situationism, saying, hold on a minute, what the bloody hell is this? coup it's not real and then you go home what are you who are you what is my role in the world that we have no access to what is real that we are living in an impersonation of reality i've never really gone along with all that debord stuff it's all men in black who like punk music talk about that sort of stuff they're all right um i think it's in a way more mundane than that is that every every age creates its own reality that's what power does i mean the function of power is to tell you a story about the world yeah our story wins yes because what is reality? It's just a jumble of masses of things. Yeah, and atoms, real, gas, real power dark matter. Is, is taking the reality and shaping it. And at the moment, I think, and what you're talking about is also, is that we are becoming a bit distrustful of the stories those in power tell us. And it's all feeling a bit jangly and 
a bit falling apart. And what we're waiting for is another story that comes along. Mm. What I find it a bit odd is that actually, rather than celebrating this moment of sort of transition from one big story to another, we're feeling so frightened rather than actually celebrating it as a moment where you can shape anything the way you want it to be. Mm. I think what's lurking around is not just religion. There are two things sitting around waiting. One is religion, the other is science. It's the thing that no one ever talks about at the moment because science has, has got stuck in many ways. Yeah, in dogma. In sort of weird dogma, but also because it's all about serving the individual these days, scientists spend their time getting grants by doing research that tell us that if you eat this, you'll die. Or if you do this, it'll have a, a bad effect on your health. And then next year telling you the opposite about the, here's another one. that mm. it's, it, it's, sort of redu- it's, it's been reduced in our imaginations. Whereas so, what science used to do was tell us extraordinary things about the world, the hidden things that it could reveal. And there's a sort of awesomeness waiting there to be rediscovered. And I have this instinct that what might happen in answer to the sort of rather strange utilitarian stuckness of our time is that someone will find a way of fusing scientific ideas and religious ideas to produce a sort of, I don't know, a vision of an extraordinary world that somehow has a logical power to it. And it will, the science and the religion will fuse. And it will, what it will offer is a way of us still feeling that we're individuals, but there's another world we can go towards. Mm. What do you think will be the role of like um, traditional religions, Adam, like Islam and, well, like Islam in, in this sort of changing world? Islam's interesting because it, 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 it combines an idea of individualism with the sense of community. Mm. And it's powerful, that. I mean, it's, but again, in the Western world, it's very difficult to discuss Islam at the moment without getting a wave of, of what's the word? Fear and disapproval, because it's been so demonized. Mm. I mean, it, I, I'm not trying to praise Islam or, 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 or be rude about it, but it is an, it's a fascinating religion to look at. And I think I gave you a book once, which was uh, the history of the world told from the Islamic perspective. And when you read it, it just makes you look at the world differently. Yeah, and that's Destiny what we don't do these days. That that's right, Destiny Disrupted. It's a fantastic book because it makes you pull back and look at the world differently. And we just don't do that these days. Mm. I suppose people aren't really willing to embrace that kind of mentality or change unless there is some sort of desperation, typically and traditionally. Like people don't like, you know, say like Latin revolutions in sort of, I'm obviously a bit off this mic, people are concerned that my voice isn't as deep and booming and dominant as it ought to be. Um, like that, you know, like typically revolutions happen when the conditions are sort of correct, when people are galvanised and all there's an element of desperation. In but then way. there's always someone who comes along who crystallises it. I mean, I've always been fascinated by the Iranian revolution. Oh, yeah. Khomeini came along. I mean, he, and, and he managed to assemble three or four different groups in society and somehow gave them a common identity. He then just killed off about two of the other groups. He's going really well, this guy. Oh, <laughs> just the few executions towards the back end of the revolution, eh? Masses. Right, but got up until then... Well, I mean, what Khomeini did is he realised that there was a whole massive group of people who'd moved into the cities over the last 10 years in the 1970s who were really pissed off and felt that completely alone... And he saw that group, and he also saw that there was a group of middle-class, left-wing activists, mm-hmm. and he put the two together. Because what he did with Islam is he said, no, we can politicise it. He politicised Islam, and especially Shia Islam, which had always seen itself as quiet. It, it wasn't going to take any active role in the world. And that was its tradition. And he did it brilliantly. 
And he then took power and he got rid of the middle class activists. He's just shot them. Abrupt. I mean, well, revolutions are brutal and yes. they're frightening. And, th and this is the, the thing that one has to go back to if you want change. If you really want to change the world, you have to tackle power. Mm. And when you tackle power, it's quite rough. And things will get quite, what's the word, iffy. <laughs> and I yeah. think the middle classes might find it a bit difficult. And I remember once having had a thing with you when we were talking about this, just turning to the audience and saying, well, actually, really, you talk about revolution, you talk about change. Do you really want it? Yes. It will change the world massively for you. Or do you just want the banks to be a little bit nicer? Yes. Is that it? I think it and is. I, and there was complete silence because actually I do think at the moment in the West, people genuinely, they're nice, they're good. They really want change, but they want change that isn't really going to disrupt the world. And I'm not sure that's really possible. If you really want mm. to give a voice and a power and a sense of confidence to all those people outside this city yes. who are feeling lonely and uncertain and living completely what's the word, uncertain lives, have no sense of their own confidence, confident future, you're going to have to change things quite substantially and you're going to have to take on really vested interests. Yeah. And that's going to be quite frightening. You've got to be willing to give up everything. Is it? I think that like the difference between a priest and a prophet, as someone explained to me, was the, uh, the willingness to live it, the willingness to say, well, I'd, yes. I'll, I'll sacrifice everything. And, and I, I go back to this, the civil rights movement in the 1950s in America. White middle-class activists went to the South and they gave up their lives for years to do something that they thought was morally right. And as someone wrote the other day, you cannot imagine that happening now. They'd want to be telling everyone that they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah? Because that's how you get validated these days as an individual. You want people to know that you're doing it. But you Most of the heroes of the civil rights movement, especially remain anonymous. With, remain anonymous. Of course, precisely. Now, again, what you're talking about is a a veiled spiritual idea because that is, is about yes it is because it's about the transcendence of your individualism that you can't that you're not going to receive validation from anyone but, in but he, whose also, service we but that's also politics politics is about giving yourself up to some an idea beyond yourself so is religion and it's 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 a dominant idea about how you uh, uh, how you deal with a dynamic world at the moment we pretend the world is stable but it's not going to be it can't no, and in fact, it isn't. I mean, the fact it, I heard a wicked quote from dear old Osho, uh, and it sort of rings incredibly true given the actuality, the cosmic actuality, you know, of not just our time, but of all time. He said, uh, you know, like sort of someone brought up society and he says, society, what is society? It's a clearing in the forest. You know, this, is some, this will be reclaimed by nature. We are in infinite space. So your point about order and stability, these things are always temporal. The idea of ongoing stability in limitless chaos when the actual we are being cradled by absolute chaos is it's a anathema and it's unsustain it is unsustainable it can't continue but it chaos will resume but it doesn't mean you can't try and achieve good things i mean there are two no it doesn't mean that there are two types of po political ideas of change one is that you can actually seize history and turn it your way which is sort of what Napoleon has tried to do. He's a great example. The other is, is that you, you, you understand that the world is chaos and you see a moment where you can use the chaos to morally achieve what you want to do. And that's the other way of changing the world, that, that it's about opportunity. But you have to do that. You have to have a picture in your mind of what you are trying to get towards, mm. what you think is good. And then you adjust 
as the chaos around you changes. And but 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 we do neither. We think this is it. These ideologies are all uh, have to be sort of pretty reactive in a sense, though, Adam. Because otherwise, how do you fashion them? Even if you talk about one of the most sort of uh, radical, uh, murderous, but sort of uh, vivid narratives to emerge, like in the sort of twentieth uh, century fascism, is like that was a response to economic and political but, conditions. You can't just out of nowhere go, let's do this thing. The land is alive. We are no, the if, folk. And that's why it's frightening change. I mean, he, that was a response to chaos in the 1920s. Mm. Um, and, and, and remember that they were socialists to begin with, the Nazis. Yeah, national socialists. And they had seen the chaos of the market in America and in Europe, and they reacted against it and said, no, we are going to organise this and we are going to go towards this and it's very dangerous i mean the other argument is that all rhetoric about revolution at the moment is just rhetoric because the experience of our generation of our time is a, a century of revolutions that went badly wrong yeah and the last thing we want is one of more of them and that actually what we've, we're creating in reaction is a very conservative moment a counter-revolutionary moment and that's what we're living through and it may go on for quite a long time and that all arguments about revolutionary change are just like courtly behavior we do it but we don't really expect it's ever going to happen this is a cynical mm. view but maybe that's how history works you go through a period of intense revolution which does change the world and then you have a counter-revolution which uh, which is actually born out of the, the 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 social classes that came out of those revolutions that failed, but it led to a new class breaking through, mm. and now they want everything to be stable. And the, the, the argument about what people like Mrs. Thatcher and President Reagan were about is that a new lower middle class, which were confident, rose up in the 1970s and wanted its place in society. And they let the, Thatcher and Reagan let that class through economically. New Labour let it through culturally and socially and gave it confidence, and now it wants everything to stop and be mm. stable. And the systems of management that uh, we have got in place that I'm talking about, keeping everything stable, are a reflection of that class, that powerful new class's desire for stability. And we may be in this for the long, time, long term. But of course, again, these, things, these are quite isolated interests, like on a global level, aren't they, Adam? I mean, or do you... Or do you because like, when I'm when you say something like that, I think, oh right, well, the, yeah. Ultimately, there has to be a resource, like any management of power. The resource has to be sort of the feelings of the people, you know. And of course, people can be manipulated, directed, encouraged. There's all sorts of things that can happen to, you know. Because look at the way we consume, look at the things we do, the places we go, what we wear. Obviously, people's desires can be managed, manipulated, and moved around. No question, but. Like when you talk, when you sort of, when it becomes quite defined and specific as it just did, when you talk about like you know, like sort of a, a generation of people going through Thatcherism and then sort of Blairism or whatever we would call it, and now like that makes sense to me as a narrative. It makes perfect sense. But again, we're talking like to, to wield such incredible influence. We're talking about a very small phenomenon, aren't we? We're talking about a sort of a class of people in well, Western Europe. We're living States in our bubble. America. Where we're living in our bubble in history and in geography. There are all sorts of other... I mean, the, the sad thing about our time is there are all sorts of other things happening outside our bubble. But because we're so scared of change and we're scared of looking outside and we're scared of the future, mm. we don't really see them. I always think the thing about our time, which is sad, is that we're a bit like... You know when things go wrong in an aeroplane, you're, you're encouraged to adopt what they call the brace position, yeah. where you hunker down, you're too frightened to look out of the window because you can see the wing going up and down like that. And that's where we are at the moment. We're, ref we're refusing to look outside and see another 
I do all my playing journeys in Bray's position. As soon as I've got on before they bring the food. Bray, Bray! Oh, Mr. Brown, do you stop rooting? Not now, I'm busy! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in Bray's position. Adam, why are you looking at your phone? See, look at him. I've never known anyone so keen to manage and keep things stable than Adam Curtis. It's, it's bloody you. Every time a little bit of chaos comes from the underneath, from the upside down, from the other world, from the nether regions, from the other place, from the shadowlands, you look down at your smartphone so vehemently and aggressively. Oh, no, I'm not having that. Don't you? You're like Lord Palmerston. Do you know much about Lord Palmerston? Of course I do. He's probably had a stovepipe hat and probably went, Order! Order! Eyes to the right! No, no! Lord Palmerston, a biography by Russell Brand, based on four or five noises and one fact, that fact being his name. I don't even know if he was which party he was in, Liberals, Whigs, Conservatives, I don't even remember the names of them. Adam, thank you for coming here, in here. Pleasure. You know I love you very much. I do know that. <laughs> I wonder where you fit into all this in your emotional life. You're happy, are you? Yes. Hmm. Something's manifesting itself. I don't think it's just pure narcissism, but even if it is, it's it's very powerful. It's very real. I wonder what's happening for you in the world. Well, I, I think you're trying to... I mean, I, I'm, I was being serious that you, you are a sort of... The, the persona you have created as a comedian is the arch-narcissist of our age. You You play on that. And you, but you are self-conscious about it. And in that sense, you are, what's the word? An example of modern social realism. Because everyone lives in their heads these days, like you said. They just do. They don't live outside. And most modern novels are all the internal monologue. And in a way, you're an exponent. You're, you're, you, 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 you demonstrate that in three-dimensional space. You, you're very good at doing the, bringing out the consciousness, the, the, the way people live in their heads all the time. And you express it in a big, what you would call, comedic way. Well, it is objectively comedy. It is a discipline. It's an art form. You don't have to qualify what, it with what, what you would call. And what you're keeping bumping up against is what lies beyond that. Yeah? And is it religion? Or is that it? Well, it is... It is religion in the sense of like that I, in spite of being on a course of religion in global politics where they tell me this is not the definition, but I believe that religion is where we interface with the divine. Where like This is the thing, I think I said this to you on the phone the other day. I said, ultimately, our capacity to understand information will run out. We are, well, there is a limit to our ability to understand information, but the information will not run out. So but at some point, faith but isn't that what religion is, in a sense, about? It's about the acknowledgement of yes. everything we don't know yes. and a story that is based on faith trying to make sense of what we don't know. That's right. I've that's always right. thought that's what religion was about. Well, apparently plus, con plus consolation in the face of not knowing everything. Well, that'd be nice. I'd and like I, and I think a bit of humility might be really good for our society in the future. And maybe we've reached the limits of that individualism. But maybe we haven't. Maybe this is it. Because we think of like uh, Trump as a sort of like a sort of a gargoyle decoration on the priapic thrusting hard on of an individualistic well, again, age. Well, again, you can look at you can look at Trump as the fag end of that sort of individualism that started back in the seventies. It means fag in English, American listeners. Yeah. Yes, I mean, the, yeah, the decayed end. Yeah. Uh, of that, that that the sort of the the the, the counterculture sitting around in the nineteen seventies, going politics is shit, man. 
is it, it ends up with Trump. It's sort of amazing. You know, and I can see he has as many roots in the punk movement as he does in, in, in the libertarian right wing of the mm. 70s. And he's somehow a, a moment where all those currents have come together and are showing how decayed they've become. Which means, again, we're waiting for something else. Yeah? I agree. Well, it's time for something else. Something is. Something is. <laughs> You've been listening to the Russell Brand podcast with the great Adam Curtis. Hypernormalization is available on BBC iPlayer. If you're American, you can probably get it on YouTube by now, you slippery eel, although the British licensed payer paid for that. And what did you do? You threw our tea into the harbour in Boston. Well, enjoy the film. Not on my penny, you don't! That was Russell Brand under the skin. I hope you enjoyed listening to me interviewing Adam Curtis. And now an advert for, hmm, what would you like? Well, I don't know, a biscuit? Get yourself a biscuit. Biscuits available down at the shops there. Which ones are you going to get, though? Well, that's up to you. But do get yourself a nice biscuit. Not if you're worried about your weight, though. Make some changes. Vegetables. Have a vegetable. I'd like to thank everyone that contributed to this show. Uh, Gareth, he produced it. Steve and Ollie, they've been invaluable in putting the thing together. And then Jenny Mae Finn. Thank you, all of you, for your contributions. I'd also like to thank people that have come up with ideas such as sitting still and being nice. Thank you, those guys. Subscribe if you like this podcast. If you don't, still subscribe because we can still use you as capital and give it a five-star review because a bloated sense of self-importance is what gets me through the night.